Real Fun DC. Industry Night with Nikki Mellis. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, here on Real Fun DC. Uh, for those of you joining for the first time, I want to thank you for uh, checking us out on Tommy McFly and Kelly Collis' Real Fun DC channel. You may have used to hear me uh, from Full Service Radio out of the Line Hotel. That is not happening right now, and I am so fortunate that I do have a home here with Tommy and Kelly on Real Fun DC. You may have also heard me on Foodie and the Beast. I do that variety show with my husband, David Nellis, every Sunday on 1500. We've been doing that show for almost 13 years now. Uh, of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. But where it all started is online with the list, areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that talks about every food and wine event happening in the DC metro area. And we have been doing that for the last 18 years. So I don't know if you've been out yet, but the city is incredibly alive. Um, it's really exciting. I may have said the exact same words last week, but every time I go out, there's so many people around and there's a real vibrancy and it it feels really good. Um, if you're vaxxed, you can be back. And uh, every business, a little reminder is different. So some businesses still have signs saying that you need to wear a mask irregardless, which is not actually a word, uh, but regardless. And um, I know not everybody is into it, but the longer we wear masks and follow the rules, the sooner this is all over for good. So as many of you know, I am vexed and uh, I'm happy to brag about it. And fortunately, so is my entire family. So we are like out, really out. And the world is our oyster or the perfect segue, Oyster Oyster, which is one of the many restaurants that have opened in the past week. So on the website, the list, com, you can find the list of every single restaurant that is opened. You can also find in the coming soon restaurants that are opening. But just this week, we have Oyster Oyster from Rob Ruba and Max Color. It's their almost vegan spot in Shaw. Now, Glenn's Garden Market is one of our local favorite grocery stores. They've sold it. They've sold it to Dawson. So you can shed a tear for Glenn's Garden Market, but we can also applaud because we love Bart Yamblowski. He owns Dawson's Market up at Rockville and uh, is now coming to D.C. and really is going to keep the integrity of uh, Glenn's and change it to Dawson's. La Colina is the Italian sister to the Duck and the Peach, and that is now open. There is a noodle bar opening at MGM Grand. It's by the people of Ginger. And Ashok Bajaj is opening up his latest, La Bise. Now, don't forget to stay up to date on places that are set to open someday. They always think it's going to be like next week or next month and it's next year. But uh, Butter Me Up, the uh, really cool pop-up at Half Smoke, is getting its own brick and mortar. The famed Blue Rock Inn is bring, being totally brought back to its original glory. Love Mikado is a new Japanese food hall and they have very big plans. And Crazy Aunt Helen's. I don't love the name, but I didn't name it. Um, it's industry veteran uh, Shane Mason. He is hoping to open by the end of June. Now, I did make it to a couple places over the last week. I checked out Tate Bethesda, finally. I had checked out the one in D.C. Very cool bakery and cafe. 
from uh, uh, Israeli pastry chef out of Boston. Um, they're really doing gorgeous build-outs here. I wouldn't go for the croissants, quite frankly, but I would totally check out all the salads. The breads are amazing, and the sandwiches are really, really good. Um, Albi, we were back to see what Mike Rafiti was doing. His love and time food is bar none. It's an amazing place. If you haven't had a chance, I highly recommend it. On the horizon, I'm heading out to RDV for some sizzling new things. Uh, True Lux just opened and I'm checking it out. And a couple staycations are on the horizon as well, including the Mandarin Oriental, a trip to the Shenandoah, and Lansdowne Resort has been totally renovated. They're getting all into wellness and I'll be getting out there and soon we'll be able to tell you about that too. Uh, not local, I am heading out to Puerto Rico uh, in a couple weeks. So I'm looking forward to that too. All this travel, it's very exciting. Uh, and I hope you all are doing the same thing. But now let's get on to this week's show. So as we all emerge, there are a lot of changes out there. What does it look like for retail in the DC area? Just like restaurants, there was so much chatter during the pandemic to support your local stores and, and you know, really do what we could to support retail. But how do we make sure that our city streets stay vibrant with not just great places to eat, but also great places to shop or go into or experience? Um, so I feel like today I, I really did bring in the experts on retail retention in this city. Um, Leona Agordias is joining us. She's the executive director of the Golden Triangle Business Improvement District, or the BID, and she's gonna tell us what that's about. Uh, Philippe, Lanier is joining us. He's one of the top commercial real estate developers in the nation's capital with majority retail landowner in Georgetown. And he's also a part of this concept 31M, which I'm totally interested in. Jim Rosenheim is the second generation owner of the Tiny Jewel Box and one of the most incredible independent uh, retailers in the city and they are growing. So we're really looking forward to discussing all the different angles here. Uh, Leona, I really want to start with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Great. So for those who don't know, what is a bid? What does it do? <laughs> so bid stands for business improvement district. There are 11 of them in the district of Columbia and we are nonprofits. Our mission is to support economic vitality in our neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, there is a, a neighbor, uh, one in uh, Philippe's area, for example, in Georgetown. Um, ours in particular is uh, around the central business district and our boundaries start at the foot of the White House and, and Lafayette Park up to DuPont Circle and um, over to Washington Circle generally. But for, uh, you know, sort of the lay person who really may not understand because um, we've yeah. talked to people from Shaw, like Shaw Main Streets, like they're desperate to get a bid, they haven't been able to get it. So how mm -hmm. do you have that designation and what right. is your mission to do there? So, so the most important thing is that the property owners in that area decide that they want to work together to make their neighborhood better. And part of that is that they all essentially agreed to sign on to paying um, a, an assessment annually to support that. And so each bid is different because each neighborhood is different. And that's kind of what the beauty of a bid is, is you can kind of tailor your um, program to the needs of your neighborhood. 
Ours in particular is very busy, very dense. And so there's a very strong need to, um, you know, keep the streets clean. Uh, 90,000 people a day come here just to work, right? right? And then all of the other activity that, that goes on. Um, we do in the Golden Triangle a lot of events and activations, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about a little bit later because it's part of creating an experience for people. Um, we do a lot of artwork. We do a lot of long-term planning um, for the neighborhood. You know, um, some of the things coming out of COVID that we're really working on is how do we change the um, the office economy in that neighborhood. And, and one of the big things that we're working on is a program with um, uh, George Washington University in the city mm. to create an innovation area um, along Pennsylvania Avenue, west of the White House, up into the central business district. So it depends on the neighborhood and the needs of the neighborhood, but bids are pretty nimble organizations with a really broad mission to you know that they can tailor to whatever the needs of the time and the area are well you brought up two things that i'm, I'm really interested in i mean first and foremost with the pandemic and with the change in how many people were coming to your area every day yeah. i'm sure your phone was blowing up with people like asking you what to do how to do and how to make it work how were you utilized in that and and i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna sort of piggyback that with activations because the rise in activations, which I applaud, and it makes the city even better, um, how do you engage that and how do you work with your members? With yeah. You know, it's, it's a two-pronged question. Right, and lots of answers to it. So, so first of all, just to kind of set a little context, there are 34 million square feet of office space in the Golden Triangle. Um, there are 20, there are 36 residences in the Golden Triangle, right? And so the neighborhood was really hard hit because what has everybody been doing since March of 2020? Everybody has been telecommuting. And so we're starting to see a little bit of an increase. Um, we probably aren't going to really be back to some type of normal until the fall. And, 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 and that's based on a lot of data and surveys and, and phone calls and other things like that. But so back to the question, the, the retail and restaurant in the neighborhood has um, traditionally been so rich with foot traffic, right? Um, the lines going out, think about the Greek deli, right? On 19th Street, oh my, the lines going out there, you know, for decades, right? And so um, suddenly that all dried up. And we were talking to retailers, um, Leon, for example, on L Street, um, which has since closed, it closed, you know, nationally, right? So not just in our neighborhood, but they were lucky to do $200 a day during, to, to pull in gross receipts of that much during the, the very beginning of the pandemic. So, so we, you know, uh, we basically refocused our staff to become what we've called ourselves economic first responders. Right. And a large part of that economic first response was directed initially to restaurant and retail. Um, spent a lot of time following all of the programs going around that the District of Columbia was offering, that the federal government was offering um, to kind of help walk our businesses through what they needed to do in order to survive. Um, we did a lot of marketing, you know, through our own social media channels, and we tried through Earn Media as well to place some stories to you know, get our retailers out there. 
I think the most important thing though that we did during the pandemic on behalf of our businesses was technical assistance. Um, you know, both with um, hiring a firm to help people with uh, PPP um, uh, applications, but, and I think um, even more importantly, we hired a digital media firm where, um, uh, you know, and we, we asked retailers and restaurants to apply and to commit to working with them, but the digital media firm helped a retailer for, or a restaurant, for example, Greek Deli. Um, who has always relied on foot traffic and has never really used digital, mm -hmm. right, or delivery has helped, has helped them to kind of develop that capacity. And so, you know, from all of our, all of the businesses that we worked with, we had a couple who had 20-year-old websites. We had a couple who didn't have e-commerce. We had a couple, the Greek Deli, for example, he had no reason to use Grubhub. Right. or Uber right. Eats or anything like that. So so really to kind of help them. And so the, the businesses that have been able to withstand this COVID crisis, I think are going to emerge stronger and better able to, um, you know, compete post, um, you know, post COVID. Um, so I, I think that is probably a, a super important thing that we were doing during the height of the pandemic. Um, we are working on something that is a whole other question, I think, called Grow Golden, which is really building an ecosystem for the future we can talk about in a minute. But to go back to your question about activations, mm -hmm. um, you know, those people who know us know that we have always felt that on-street activation is important in our neighborhood. And like I said at the beginning, we're 34 million square feet of office space. Mm -hmm. So we need and we want to create interest and texture because nobody lives here. So no one's gonna come down unless you give them a reason to. And, and, and we're the people that brought Burning Man a couple of years ago to the streets of DC. So, um, so we've been doing it for a while. It's in our strategic plan. We value it, we hug it. Um, and just in the last couple of weeks, because we've been, you know, trying to time our efforts with encouraging return to the office. Um, and we, you know, we all see this kind of ramping up until the fall. We, we have installed a number of pieces um, and, and, and most of them on Pennsylvania Avenue. They're called, it's called social spaces, but it's a collection of three different artworks it's in our parks. Um, and two of them are places where people can sit and be outside and enjoy the park space and come back to the office. Um, we've you know, put out so many tables in our six uh, national parks um, to bring people in and to encourage them. Um, and uh, you know, we're just, we've, we're just ready to pop. We've added our fitness classes back. We're going to bring our movies back in the fall. We decided because when we were planning, we didn't know when restrictions would be lifted. And so we wanted to you know, be able to plan something. So um, yeah, by all means, our art and activations are super critical, I think, to giving the, the neighborhood interest and texture and giving people a reason to come down. And then, of course, coming to our restaurants and retail. Well, before I move on from you, I, one of the questions I want to ask is, is it hard for you right now to engage with new retailers? Um, 
are people like how how does that work for you right now because there was this lull and you know lots of people are talking like about the changes of main street i mean i'm being very you know yeah literal there but how does that work for you so you know at the, at the moment because we still are seeing ourselves in this covid mode so we are staffed and directed to be able to do that. We've got, um, you know, there was some activity that was in play before COVID that is is coming to market or has come to market in the last couple of weeks. Um, they, you know, there was a period where there was nothing in play and now the tours are really, really, really picking up, right? And the retail brokers will tell me and the restaurant brokers will tell me that they've had a lot of, there's some pent up demand, right? Um, maybe some businesses closed and they're reinventing themselves or maybe they just decided to wait out, you know, the height of the pandemic before opening and growing. Um, one uh, a program that we have put into, um, into play uh, just recently, it's called Grow Golden. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we've been working on this actually since the winter um, when we, and we just completed the pilot and just launched um, open open application period. But what it, it's, it's trying to do is to attract small, local, diverse businesses to the neighborhood to build out our ecosystem of, um, of, of local and authentic, you know, retail, um, because you traditionally the, um, you know, the foot traffic, the visibility, the location has really attracted the nationals. And when the nationals really started to close across the country, um, you know, it left vacancies. And so this is a great opportunity, I think, to um, showcase homegrown District of Columbia retail mm -hmm. um, and restaurants. And we've been, um, we, we tested it out. Um, we're an open application now. And the goal really is to match landlords with uh, people who are looking for, you know, 3,000 square feet with, you know, venting or not venting and, uh, um, you know, for three months or six months or a year. And so that's, that is in process right now. We're, and we're staffed up so that we can um, when we get the deadline uh, to deadline and we're processing the applications, we'll be fine. So, so the short answer to your question is what we're staffed for right now. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis, Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Philippe, I thank you for joining us. You are a principal at East Bank. It's one of the top commercial real estate developers in the nation's capital. And you own a bunch of stuff in Georgetown. Um, so I want to thank you for joining us because I, I have to be honest, you're one of the, I think you're the third person in the past year who's actually in real estate, who's agreed to chat uh, on one of my shows because um, your perspective is so necessary and so needed, but I think you guys are made out to be the bad guys all the time. But I, I, I feel that way only because I don't think people know how it works. So I want to thank you in advance for coming on air. But you know, when people talk about, you know, they can't pay their rent and et cetera and so on. I mean, they're, they're talking about you. So the question is, is, is how, what happened for you? I mean, I know you have a, a lot of real estate, but how are you changing what you're doing right now when it comes to uh, retaining uh, retailers and restaurants, but also bringing in new ones? 
Sure. Well, th thanks for, for having me on the show. And mm -hmm. it's not all me. I mean, there, there's a big company behind me and some great partners, but, but I'm happy to represent them. Um, uh, I, I can't speak to whether there are bad guys out in real estate. Um, I, I consider myself lucky that I hang out with a good crowd and, and uh, we, uh, uh, we took an approach immediately that was responsive to the, the struggles of, of our uh, tenants. And we certainly wanted to make sure that they were still around when this was all done. So um, to be honest, I, I think we had a, a great experience with almost all of them. A few of them had to go through bankruptcy protection or, or outright, you know, had to close the stores, but far less than one could have feared. Mm -hmm. um, and for the rest of them, uh, we worked awfully hard last year. Us and them were, were working, you know, 20 hours a day and every four weeks, uh, you know, another emergency happened, right. right? That you wouldn't have expected. So, so it was exhausting, but we, you know, we structured percentage deals. We structured, structured deferrals of rent. We extended terms. Um, we found a way to make sure that they were never put in a position where they were just outright losing money for no purpose, yeah. but they also made a, a similar commitment to us that if they could find a way to recover their business and, and disproportionately profit, then they, they would give us the money back. And if it didn't happen, you know, we're all we're all adults, and and we recognize that that um, that's that's life, you know. And we have good tenants; they all work with us. Well, so since you're you have so much in Georgetown, what um, how would you describe sort of the evolution of Georgetown shopping over the last you know couple of years? Well, how far back do you want to go? Well, I mean, you know, like, honestly, we, I don't, we don't have a whole show to dedicate yeah. to. I really yeah. feel like we could really go down a rabbit hole here. But, yeah. you know, I mean, even if you just look at the last, let's say the last five years sure. of Georgetown, I, I feel like there's always these ebb and flows in what comes in and what comes out of Georgetown. Oh. But it is also one of the few areas in D.C. that really retains retail. Because so many other areas just don't seem to, Leona, no, no, you know, judgment over there, but like, it's hard, I feel like when you go to like 14th Street, or you go down to the wharf, or even like the Navy Yard, like you have all these new shiny places, but they retail struggles. Yeah. Well, well, uh, you know, we're lucky in Georgetown. Uh, it, it's more than just retail. We, we have the water, we have the canal, we have the history. We're geographically located uh, in between Maryland and Virginia. So we don't, we don't have the additional 15 minutes that it needs for someone from another state to get to the center. Um, you know, so, and, and we have uh, a great bit as well that, that does all the things that Leona does for her, for her neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it's a team effort. Uh, myself, and my company, we certainly uh, do do um, our share to provide the retail experience, right? And um, what's changed? Uh, retail was evolving well before COVID, and, and you know this conflict between shopping online and shopping in store, mm -hmm. um, you know, wasn't lost on any uh, professional in the industry. It's just when when you have a large established brand like Coach you know, with stores all across America, it takes a lot longer to pivot and adapt to the, the new model than if you're a brand new brand like Warby Parker that says, let me try online first. Let me run around with the bus around the country and see which neighborhoods I like. And now, now let me build some stores. Um, and for us, we had to um, 
give the established players the time they needed to evolve their model, but attract a lot of the new players um, that were selling things that people wanted, that were marketing in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, we were one voice amongst many. When you have a hot new brand in the country, you have six cities that are saying, come open up a store in my city. And they don't have enough cash to open up six stores at the same time because they're a new brand. Mm -hmm. So we had to be seductive. Um, and what we did early on is we adapted our lease contracts and, and uh, shifted heavily to a percentage of rent model that had a floor as opposed to just a 10 year lease that was uh, prescriptive um, and really gave the retailers the opportunity to take a risk, try our market and enjoy the fact that we had good foot traffic. Um, does that work? That works, I, I mean, for larger brands and I understand you know, we can all look at a Warby Parker and think, what do you mean they don't have money? Like, you know, we see them everywhere. Yeah. Um, but for, is it important for Georgetown to also have the independent retailer and not just, you know, the mall brands? That's exactly right. It, it's extremely important and you have to attract them. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an effort because you have a lot of people involved and everyone has a different concept of what their store looks like. And in Georgetown, what we uniquely have a challenge with is all the buildings being historical. You, you can't just move walls really easily like you can in a mall. So it takes time, but, but the, the spirit is there and it evolves over time. So, so absolutely, we were working years before COVID um, to, to create this diversity and, and have a nice balance of chains versus you know, independence and the online brands that wanted to try bricks and mortar. Yeah. Um, and what's nice about it is because we are at it so early, when the pandemic hit, we already were predisposed with our partners and our banks to provide the types of contracts that people needed for that kind of flexibility. Um, so we've, we've done pretty good, you know, we're, we're well-respected in, in the community and, and we know how to close a deal. And, and I think we're attracting some great names. So, so I think we're lucky. And what about your concept 31M? So, like I said, since the buildings are, um, immutable, uh, brands these days seem to want smaller and smaller spaces and, sure. and I can't shrink the buildings. So um, already years before we were trying to um, research which merchants out there were collaborating with brands and selling multiple things in one space, the, the traditional concept store. Mm -hmm. And that is evolving in America. Um, you know, there's a company called Neighborhood Goods, for instance, that does something like that, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not evolving quick enough. And now when COVID hit, there are certain spaces that came back to us that were just far too large to lease outright. And, and the one that Concept 31 is that used to be an old Brooks Brothers, it's uh, more than 20,000 square feet. There, there are not a lot of stores out there that are making big decisions like that right now. And, and we couldn't wait for someone to figure out how to merchandise it. So in the end, we had to do it ourselves. And, and we created a concept store that is um, doing what I think retail should be doing right now, which is listening to your local audience and understanding what people locally want to shop and not just the tourists, but also providing something uh, that the tourists can enjoy because it's different. So we, we uh, create an easy entrance. We allow uh, local merchants or national uh, uh, retailers that want to try something in short form in, in Washington to sign a three month lease that's renewable um, at, a, at a low rent with a percentage of your sales and, and in aggregate, we've created a great retail concept and something that's worth visiting. 
So is it a variety of, of pop-ups basically in a single space? Do you have, I, I assume it's multiple vendors. That's right. It's, ex it's exactly that. And, and, you know, throughout the, the retail landscape, be it office like WeWorks or retail, yeah. what, what people really cherish right now is the ability to change their mind and exit. The, the world is changing so quickly, it's a lot tougher to make a 10 or a five year decision. So if you can provide them that flexibility, you know, it, it allows you to filter what works in a community faster. Um, and so that's well, what we've done. You saw a lot of that during the pandemic. You saw lots of concepts that really couldn't afford an entire brick and mortar on their own, but yeah. they collaborated on spaces. So there'd be that's three right. or four concepts that were like, well, we're not serving we're not doing dining in any way. So they were using retail spaces almost as commissaries, uh, but they right. would have multiples there and, you know, they could all do all the Uber Eats or delivery that they wanted, uh, specifically right. for the food world. But, but the, the important thing when you say pop-up, just to make sure that you understand the nuance, you know, we're not in the business of telling people to leave the market. If right. they want to come and they're succeeding, they want to, they want to, to stay. So, so if it's working, they, they extend. And if they want a bigger space, we, we have other spaces in the market and we have other friends that own buildings. We'll find a place for them to stay. The important thing is they, they start, they make an effort and in making an effort, they, they, they grow. No, no, no. I use a pop-up as a marketing tool. Yeah. I think, you know, it's uh, people use it as a way to sort of uh, not commit to what they're actually doing, but I'm completely well aware that if yep. it works, you're not going anywhere or you're going to yep. try to make it, uh, you know, become a brick and mortar uh, legitimately. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. <sighs> Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. So now I'd like to move on to Jim, second generation owner of the Tiny Jewel Box, which um, my husband used to work at Garfinkel's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, and uh, like in corporate Garfinkel's, he's much older than me. And uh, he used, he knows exactly, like he used to work like right over there and look over at you. Uh, so uh, he has very fond memories. Of course, he never bought me anything at the Tiny Jewel Box, but I'm wife number three. I'm, it's coming at some point, I have no doubt. Uh, so tell us, Jim, a little bit of the history of the Tiny Jewel Box. Well, um, it's funny that you mentioned Garfinkel's because our first store, the, the original Tiny Jewel Box, um, or not where we got started, we actually, my mother got started in the National Press Building. But oh. my mom and dad opened a, built, opened a store called Tiny Jewel Box on G Street between 13th and 14th. So we were right around the corner from Garfinkel's. I remember it very, very well. Mm -hmm. um, the name came from the fact that the store was five feet wide, 20 feet long. It was a breezeway between two buildings. It had no running water. We had the keys to the restroom and the bank building next door. And um, 100 square foot store was appropriately named Tiny Jewel Box, literally jewelry hanging on the walls because there was so little space. And uh, my folks were in that space for 19 years until they tore down uh, that building. Mm -hmm. And we took over, my dad took over uh, uh, the space that was a former jeweler on Connecticut Avenue. It had been a jewelry store since 1900. It was uh, where the uh, subway stop is at Connecticut and L. And um, so we went from 100 square feet to 450 square feet. Um, 
Subway came along 40 some odd years ago, tore that down, and we moved onto the block where we're located now. We moved into the middle of the block, um, having had two buildings knocked down around us. Um, as tenants, we were um, frustrated. Ended up, my, uh, my mom and dad bought the building uh, from the owner. Mm -hmm. um, it was a 1,500 square foot um, space. And um, we operated there um, in that space. Um, and um, in the 1990s, we, I, I had uh, subsequently bought the business for myself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I had been working there since the store on G Street. Um, how old are you? I'm uh, 79 that, now. That, that how old are you? I started, I started off, I made my first sale on G Street at age six in uh -huh. 1948. Uh -huh. By the time I was 12, I was a uh, full-fledged salesperson on weekends or summers or whatever. Um, by the time I was uh, 17 years old, uh, my folks could go away for long weekends and let me run the business. Oh my God. Um, I've really been steeped in it. Um, after my, um, um, I came into the business after college and grad school. It's a whole long involved story that I don't want to bore everybody with. Um, I really wasn't educating myself to, to be into this business, mm -hmm. uh, but I knew it inside and out. And uh, anyway, I finally decided through circumstances to come into the family business. Uh, my father said, um, I should go to gemological school. Um, and so I went out to California, got my gemological degree, came back, and I've been working full time in the business uh, since but then. Let's talk about, I mean, so, I mean, listen, you're born and bred in the business, right? I mean, you're like the jeweler's jeweler as far as your rich history of your family and, and the story goes. But as a, as a business, how does the jewelry business evolve? Like when you look at sort of designs and, and what people wanted and what was a priority for sure. 30 years ago versus what people are looking for today. Well, um, we started off the businesses antique and estate jewelry. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. And when we were in that old downtown area, all the major jewelers in, the, in Washington were located on F Street and G Street. And I used to walk around as a little kid look in the windows and I came back to my parents' store and um, and asked my mom and dad, how come you're not doing what all the other stores do? Selling engagement rings and selling watches and selling new jewelry. And my father said something to me that I've never forgotten and that has been kind of my driving force uh, for my entire life in business. And that is, I want people to come to me because I'm special, not because I'm convenient. <laughs> and over the years, we have evolved the business. I have, uh, during my long career running the business. Um, I've continued to evolve the business, not just in terms of the geography of the size of the space, but I've tried many, many things. I, I brought, I was the first person to bring a serious 18 karat gold Italian jewelry into, into the metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. I was in the craft industry long before it was what it became today and it found going to craft fairs, I can remember in, uh, um, in upstate New York, in Rhinebeck, in a field in tents, discovering David Yerman, I was his first client, discovering people like Paul Morelli, who's a very noted jeweler in our industry. And I, I, 
I, I love to turn over rocks. I love to find new things. And I love to stay current. I, I think one of the reasons that a lot of retail businesses don't survive is because they become comfortable at a certain point in time when they're making money or they're profitable and they try to hold on to what they what they have. And, and the truth of the matter is in life and business, there's the only constant in my opinion is change. And business and life continues to change. It's not just fashion, it's a, lots of different things. And I, I always ask myself every day, how do I do what I do better? I, my goal was never directly, how do I make more money? I, I, I'm, I, I'm not averse to that. But I think that um, money is a product of a business well-run and well-run and relevant. And we've tried to stay relevant to changing tastes, changing markets. We, we've, we've, we've had gift businesses, we have corporate gifts, we've, done, we've, we've started and stopped many different facets of the business, they become profitable. Then when the, the, the bloom is off the rose, we'll move on to other things. Uh, designers sometimes flourish, then maybe their business recedes, then they come up with a new concept and you'll buy back into it. Um, we stay flexible. We stay trying to stay relevant. And over the but years- But I think you make a really good point, Jim. Uh, you know, if you don't stay relevant, you will go away. Oh. I mean, you may have, you know, older clients who love you, you know, who remember your parents or whatever, like, but if you don't stay relevant, if you don't offer new things, I mean, I think we can all talk about the pandemic in the last year. There were people who fought it. I mean, I had chefs call me up and say, my food does not belong in a box. And I was like, well, then don't put it in a box, but close your doors because you're going out of business. So, you know, you can fight change or you can find change, I find. A, and I a little so humility important. goes a long way. Yes, exactly. Well, so to that point, you've also expanded with two showrooms that nobody else has in the DC area. And it's... Yeah. and they're really sexy. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit about it and, and why you thought now was the time for it. Well, we were, let me give you a little history of our business during the pandemic, because I think okay. it's relevant. So we were closed for 15 and a half weeks mm -hmm. uh, during the pandemic. We had a skeleton staff in here some of the time, just that, you know, to handle people's phone calls to, if we had things that were repaired and finished to deliver things, but it, we were essentially closed. And when we reopened, we really weren't sure what business would be like. Um, the first month we were open, business was very robust. And we thought, well, maybe that's a, a bounce after being closed for all this time. Mm -hmm. But what we, what we saw that not only did the bounce sustain itself, but there was incredible record growth in the business. Business has grown and expanded um, in ways that we just, in our wildest dreams, couldn't have believed. Well, there was a lot of news stories about watches, like people well, were buying, I, 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 yes, were invested and, and, in watches. It's, it's not just the watch business, although that has been the leadership. But, you know, the first thing I did in seeing business expanding the way it was, was ask myself why. Mm. And it was, there was a very simple answer. There were lots of people who were 
still working and still earning money, but they weren't traveling, they weren't vacationing, they weren't eating in restaurants, their Amex bills. When I said to them, when I said to my clients, you know, my Amex bill is 10 or 15% what it used to be. And they would shake their heads and say, yeah, say exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So people were accumulating funds, but not spending. People had occasions that were coming along and they want, but, and they had more funds to buy things for anniversaries and birthdays and Valentine's and Christmas and all those occasions that arise. Um, and then there were those people who just wanted to reward themselves because they were just tired of being home and being tied up and not having, um, and, and really wanted to reward themselves. And very interestingly enough, what we see on the men's side of the ledger, as opposed to the women's side of the ledger, I think it had a very profound effect upon two areas, luxury cars and luxury watches. Mm. So um, can we just talk, Jim, because we only have a couple more minutes and I, I want to yeah. open this up to everybody. Can you talk about the two uh, sort of expansions that you just did? Sure. So we saw explosive business in Rolex and Patek Philippe, two of the, of the premier watch brands in the world. Mm -hmm. um, um, we approach them. We um, we have a six story building that we occupy uh, next door to where my present showroom is. Uh, we made an agreement with Patek Philippe to turn that into a thousand square foot showroom, um, which we are officially opening this Monday. Right. Uh, we've just finished the construction. We're doing a couple of private shows during the next several days there. Um, they built an extraordinary, uh, designed an extraordinary physical plant for us. And um, uh, we're extraordinarily optimistic about where that was going to, that were, where that is going to take us. Um, next to that, we own the building next door. Um, we are connecting into it internally as well as with a separate external entrance, there will be a separate Rolex store. Hmm. So Rolex and Paddock represent the two two of the premier two of the three premier brands in in the watch industry, the most successful brands. Well, I think and, it's really exciting to have those kind of concepts here in that capacity. Um, I just want to loop in Leona and Philippe to sort of just open it up a little bit about you know, sort of what's next, what you guys see on the horizon. Uh, Philippe, I'd like to start with you a little bit about aesthetics and uh, what you have to do as far as, you know, enticing people to, to come in and go to spaces and, you know, making sure that, that, that they feel like whatever they're projecting works for you, but also works for them. Do you, I mean, how much does, what you all do affects somebody else's brand. Totally understand the question. Um, I, I think that that Leona touched on it a bit. You know, the 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 Golden Triangle or downtown DC is a little bit more challenged in Georgetown because it's so dependent on that that uh, um, office footfall, which, which will be a little slower to come back. Um, and, and in that challenge, I think, and Georgetown has our challenges too. In that challenge, it, it's it's provided the opportunity for to force us to excel, 
and where we didn't have that that you know demand or the time before we could do things like in Georgetown the bids done a great job in widening the sidewalks and every six months they find a way to enhance the aesthetic of that effort hopefully good enough that they never take it down um, and Leona was was um, you know hinting at the programs that she's going to do to to make the the Golden Triangle a place to visit that that reaches beyond the office community mm -hmm. you know that's all aesthetic. And, and um, I, I think you're already seeing everyone pitch in and let their create creativity explore. So it's wonderful to watch. The, the only challenge that I see right now, um, I'm, I'm really positively surprised by everything I'm seeing in terms of foot traffic. The challenge I see right now is not every brand um, is equally uh, prepared to um, um, offer their inventory. So a lot of people are coming to shop and they're finding that what they find in the stores is less than they expected. Right. It's not, no. unique. it's not, it's not mm -hmm. ubiquitous. Every brand has their own challenges and I'm not blaming them. You know, some have logistics challenges, some cash flow challenges. They manage the inventory just right. And it all sold out. And that's the only disappointment I'm seeing. Also, I mean, the other thing I'm hearing from friends yeah. in retail is getting it, you know, back orders, things are just not coming. Uh, because if it's especially if it's coming internationally, I mean that's a whole that's a whole other that's a whole other show. That's a whole other yeah. conversation. Exactly. So the demand is there. The people are coming. They're coming right. slower to some areas than other. Different age groups are moving faster than others, and the aesthetic around it is just you know much better than it was two years ago. So it's great. That is great, Leona. For uh, you and for the uh, Golden Triangle Business Improvement District you have all these things at play what what can we share with everybody that like they should know about you know really going into summer and later into fall like your top priorities um well it, it, i mean the top priority now is really helping businesses plan their return to work right i mean as philippe said that's that's that is so important and what does retail need they need people right they need eyes on their store they need foot traffic you know the, they may you know doesn't work the way it used to where all the, you know, uh, transactions happen in store. Maybe they they go then and they, they go home and they use the website or whatever. But I mean, you know, fundamentally and primarily that's that is a main process, uh, a main goal of ours. And people, you know, a lot of people have not been downtown since March of 2020. So this is not, you know, an easy transition to plan. And there's been a lot of massive social change with regard to telework and other things. So that is number one. But number two is really kind of helping to fill these vacant retail spaces. Sure. Um, we, you know, had the regular, you know, vacancies that you would have at any given point going into COVID and retail was changing as Philippe said. And so, you know, we're trying to kind of right size that. Were we a little over retailed or not, you know, is, is the question. During the pandemic, not much happened that wasn't already in play, and now a lot is, is is trying to happen, but a lot of business is closed in the meantime. So how do we fill that? And that is what, you know, one of the things of the of the Grow Golden program is reaching out to local, um, you know, small, diverse local re businesses that may not have ever been able to consider being in downtown and saying, hey, it's here for you, um, you know, and, and, and hopefully finding some real, you know, jewels, as Philippe said, that, that end up being a permanent tenant and not just a pop-up. 
Um, and then the activation, the activation, 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 make our streets interesting, have those Instagram moments, you know, all over the Golden Triangle where people can, you know, take pictures of themselves. Um, I did see on Monday, probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen a, um, uh, Philippe was talking about WeWork, but um, Tishman Spire has a concept called Studio that is similar, which is, you know, short-term leases for spaces and rentals, and they took it all outside. And it is just the coolest thing you have ever seen. They, they, they had an art collective design it. I mean, it's got pink trees. It's got all kinds of tables. It's it's just it's it's a way of really making people say, "Wow, I, I want to be there in that space in that location." And and once again, that drives people to want to be in the neighborhood. Well, but I think again, as we're all saying throughout this show, I mean, the key is to legitimately think outside the box. I mean, it's such an right. used phrase, but you know, the people who are succeeding right now are the people who are not doing things as it's not the status quo. You have to go beyond it. Um, Jim, just lastly, I just want to throw back to you uh, before we wrap up the show, because an hour goes by like that. Um, just to tell people like what's next for you, what's coming up and, and how they can find you. And then I'll let each of you sort of give your uh, URLs or Instagram feeds. Well, we have three primary prongs of our business, the watch business. And I've, I've discussed the expansion of, um, of the Rolex and, and paddock business. And uh, that's gonna be, give us a huge street front. You know, uh, we have a very strong presence um, and those brands will attract people and make, help us to become and continue to become a destination. The other, one of the other prongs is our bridal business. And we have a very, very robust bridal business. And uh, we took it upon ourselves to design a line of engagement rings and wedding bands. And those are uniquely ours. They can be tailored to the very specific needs of, and wants of a bride um, or a prospective bride and give them something that's unique and their very own. And then on the, on the fine jewelry side of business, um, we, are, we have found some new designers whose work is fresh and different. Mm -hmm. We have some new collections that uh, from existing designers that we are bringing into the store. You know, our store is a destination kind of business. It's it, certainly people uh, establish a, a, a relationship with us by happenstance, but a lot of people, we've been in town for such a long time, people have heard of us, people come to us. And the key for a business in, in retail for me is the experience you give a customer. So mm -hmm. our business is very unique in the luxury business. It is, there, it is not a commission-based business. My staff's only, our only admonition to our staff is to make sure that every single person that comes through the door has a good experience. We feel that if we give that face-to-face -face experience to clients that come through the door, we'll not only create sales, but we'll create long-term businesses. And those customers will be the best possible advertisement that we can have. And over the course of the years that we've been in business, this formula, which really dates back to that little store on G Street that my parents had, mm -hmm. making sure that the clients have a great experience. This is, I think, the single most important reason that we've stayed in business and continue to thrive. People trust us, people 
like the experience and people will come from, if we get people from anywhere from Charlottesville to, to Delaware who come in the store with some degree of regularity. Okay, Jim, uh, I celebrate your hospitality because it is important and you obviously would not have been in business as long as you've had without it, but we do have to wrap up the show. So can you tell everybody where they can find the Tiny Jewel Box, please? Tiny Jewel Box is on the corner of Connecticut and M Street Northwest. Excellent. And Philippe, if people want to find out more about what you all are doing, 31M, et cetera, where do they find you? Nope, you're on mute. I was just saying through you, of course. <laughs> well, obviously, um, but go you know, uh, ho ho Hopefully, you know, come to Georgetown and it'll be obvious the work we've done. Uh, the, the things I would recommend are 31M, um, the Sandlot across the Four Seasons. They've been doing great in activating. Uh, we own a squash club down the street and we have a, a big squash tournament coming up in two weeks. That'll be a lot of fun. World-class, uh, the top 50 players from around the world are coming to play. Excellent. Um, you know, just come out of the house, come to DC, work your way back to the office and stop over in Georgetown on the way. I love it. Yeah, we haven't even touched on tourism, which is hopefully the next boom. Okay, yeah. Leona, please tell everybody where they can find all the information we discussed today, other than obviously the list are you on it.com uh, at the bid. Okay, well, the uh, I'm assuming you mean websites and social. Give me your yeah. website okay. and your social. Okay, uh, go, well, the website, obviously, goldentrianglecom um, And um, for Twitter, it's at goldentriDC and Instagram at Golden Triangle DC. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Leona, Philippe, and Jim. What an incredible conversation about retail in the DC area. It's going to keep changing. It's going to keep evolving, but hopefully for the better, right? Like we want our streets to be vibrant and it is up to us, the consumer, to engage let them know what you're looking for. And I love the idea of uh, pop-ups that hopefully stay and are no longer pop-ups, but even more so uh, looking for really diverse offerings more than just your typical chains. Uh, DC is a massive main street with so many different offerings, uh, retail, residential, and of course, restaurants. You can find everything you heard about here today on the list or you on it.com. Of course, follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And tune in to Foodie and the Beast every Sunday at 11 on 1500. Thanks so much for joining me today. Just a reminder, Restaurants are struggling to hire people. We've talked about it on this show almost every week. So when you go in, just remember, be patient and be kind. Before you know it, it will literally be the roaring 20s here in D.C. Be safe out there and have a delicious week. It's Industry Night with Mickey Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun D.C.